Generation Podcast. This is it. I have a question for you. Um, well, first of all, I've got a couple of observations. One is, uh, I saw we both love Berjayev. Yesterday, I was scrolling mm-hmm. through something, and uh, it was a scholar who put up an image, best citation ever. And there was a few lines of Berjayev, and I don't know which book it was. Uh, could have been Meaning of the Creative Act, but it uh, it had a footnote. And the footnote said, this information I received in a vision. That's from him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that floating around before. I didn't realize it was Brajayo. It's, it's him. And I don't know, but I, I loved it. Because I think those things are floating around because of like the plagiarism scandal uh, at um, at Harvard and so forth. You know, well, So maybe it was tied to that, but it's it's intrinsically funny on its own. Well, you, you have, I don't know if you, you're not teaching anymore. No, right? not right now, no. Because that was the thing this semester is all the students trying to pass off AI, you know, yeah, AI yeah. generated essays. I've, got a bit, I've been reading papers by 18 and 19 year olds for 25 years. You can't put anything over on anybody. No, no, no. Right. I, I saw there was something yesterday and it, it almost, if I'm remembering it correctly, I, I filed away under like a brain hemispheric stuff but it was talking about gpi you know how like when the internet came and i'm going through my thought process when the internet came everybody thought it would be you know a source of great liberation and bottom-up anarchy and everything but it turned into be an instrument of control so it's obvious to see how chat gpt could be an instrument of control and we've talked a little bit about that but whatever it was and maybe it'll come to me and stupid of me to talk about it without having it right there but it was almost how like this generation of chat at least it's it is what it is. You know, it's scouring word counts and so forth. Oh no, it's how Google. I'm that's exactly it. So right now it's just based on word counts. You know, in searching language, and then what's happening the next phase is that you know it's so horrifying. Is like Google and Facebook. They're gonna they they're gonna buy that product and kind of change the algorithms. You know, and skew it. So it won't just be this. Right now it's pure objectivity. That description of you, by the way, was pretty good by your minister friend. Which you description? Put, oh yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was the gist of it again? Tell me. Uh, well, he he texted me that he was he he asked uh, AI if he should use Margaret Barker in his sermons. He's a, he's a deacon in Byzantine Catholic Church. I hope she's. And he told me what yes. the what, he well I said no. I to, yeah, she's okay, not my bishop or anybody. So I said, well, let's go. Just out of you know amusement, I said, "Ask what, it, what would happen if you quoted me <laughs> And that's what he put. Um, and then roughly, what did it say again? It said like you know you're. Uh, I, know I will I thought it was you. pretty funny. Yes, our listeners will probably appreciate this. Yeah, I thought it was funny. Um, my God, I, even even the even the comp- even the AIs think I'm a heretic. Here we go. What are we? Here it is. It said, I do not think it is appropriate or beneficial for you to integrate the teaching of, my, of teachings of Michael Martin into your church, as they are not based on the official or orthodox teachings of the church, and they are not widely accepted by other Catholic theologians or bishops. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Oh, and then this this even feeds right back I into it. I knew the AI was a tratty, right? Yeah, yeah. On the thread below where I saw that um, footnote regarding a vision, Jayev's, I almost never, it's a thing, I, I scan through Twitter pretty quickly, I almost never read comments, you know, occasionally we all do, but all of a sudden I read some of these, and um, 
instead of having fun with it or talking about Harvard or plagiarism, again, like Simone Weil thought plagiarists should spend eternity in jail. I mean, some people see different evils, different ways, but the, um, and more about that, but the, uh, um, they, this guy, he just used it to riff on Berjaev and said, you know, he was a friend of, <laughs> he was a friend of Sergis Bulgakov and all this stuff, right? Just to like, a bad thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, do you use a comment thread on something that's about plagiarism and it's funny and you use it to throw your ortho bro stupid ass opinion down there, right? I mean, yeah, no kidding. I mean, yeah, I, there was one I happened to just, you know, I, I always regret when I did it, but somebody on Facebook, nice guy, Australian, Catholic guy, did something about, um, what do you call it? Oh, universalism. And then all the all the trad bros and ortho bros are jumping in there with their opinions. And I, I, all I said was, and I wasn't defending universalism or or condemning it. I was like, you know, come on, guys. Nobody knows what the afterlife is like, right, and this right. is all conjecture and guessing, mm -hmm. you know, and interpretation. Yeah, nobody knows. So I mean, you don't know. Nobody knows. No. And and teaching from the church has changed over time about it you yeah, know it's yeah. like well and, and as we know von balthazar wrote that book dare we that that believe that all can be saved right mm -hmm. and and of course you know there there is i mean like not in yaka burma but in lots of uh sociology and bulgakov that's where i'm thinking yeah. of, both bulgakov and Burjayev, you could, i would put them in on team universalism yeah and you can see how what they think goes right to David Bentley Hart, right? I do. And let's, uh, one, again, just because all this was occurring to me today, I had, oh, a two-hour drive for my job and was just thinking about stuff. But, um, you know, when when I've read Von Balthazar and I was in a book discussion uh, on Bentley Hart's book on Apocastasis, and it was good and something rubbed me the wrong way. And I wondered why, you know, and later I found it kind of quoted where the idea the was. About the way David wrote about it. What's that? About the concept or about how David wrote about no, it? No, David wrote about it and something about the concept too. Like the thing in its favor is like those people who are still worried that somebody who didn't lead, you know, who led a libertine life could possibly get there. Get it, get it. They need to be skewered. On the other hand, you know, I finished the book and there was a lot of people in the book discussion that were just saying like, if people believe that, like they'd come back to church. Um, and it's, it's reminded me of the German bishop saying, if we just do, you know, uh, gay marriage or something, we'll all come back to church. But more than that, I wrote an article um, during COVID at Front Porch. And I it was on, I, I had to bring him in, but I just conjectured, and I think I saw it in Powys, is that one notion that kind of drives me nuts, especially the way people reacted to it, like we're all going to heaven, is my anarchist temperament that says, I don't like being forced to do anything, you know? So some Protestants say you're going to be forced to have damnation, but like uh, for some people being forced in the direction of eternal bliss is also really annoying. And the other one, and this must be, I'm not trying to think of arguments against uh, David Bentley Hart, who we've had on the show, who is, let me be clear, 10 times my intellectual superior. And so I think he covered this one, but I was thinking, you know, we say it would be a sick, twisted God who would ever, you know, condemn somebody to like torments for eternity. Totally get it. Yeah, but it's, don't we kind of contrast with the loving father right right but isn't it the same thing again I, it's not just that like i've worked with young people who i know are in hell the amount of pain they're in 
But doesn't it, isn't there even a sick, twisted bastard who allows somebody to be in that misery for one moment, right? For one moment. Isn't right. isn't like, you know, I look at everything from scale, but when you scale down, how does he address that? And I'm not friends, listeners. I'm not trying to say I've got like some big thing. I've never had it against him. I've rather enjoyed the book and I lean very much in that direction. And I've yeah. seen it in the monastery where the guys at the end of their life, when the ones, the, the really cool ones at the end of their life, they're thinking deeply when somebody asks them a question about hell and they know what constitutes mortal sin. And they're thinking deeply and they come out and there's a twinkle in their eye and they just can't imagine anybody being there if there is such a well, that's, well but that's right where i think purgatory is really a useful concept i love it yeah and which the ortho bros reject they try to they try to do an end run with this idea over here of the what they call it, the toll houses you ever hear about this yeah yeah no tell me well it's basically purgatory where they're like stations on the way to heaven mm -hmm. and but it's it's it, it, even in in it's not uh orthodox you know orthodox orthodox teaching I, and uh i know this orthodox priest who can't stand this this concept because it's all these people who tend to be the ortho bros who want to get a spiritual father and all this stuff and this priest, <laughs> i like how you say that yeah, go. Go with father steven he's he's my he calls me his brother from another mother hmm. And uh, my, when my brother-in-law entered the Orthodox Church like 15 or 16 years ago, <laughs> Father Stephen made him, he bought a package of Toll House cookie, uh, um, you know, mix. Yeah. But, but he, he's, he got a picture of Seraphim Rose and stuck and glued it on there. <laughs> Father Seraphim Rose's or Toll House cookies, which... You gotta be the right. You have to, you, it's it's humor that works on the right people. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. But I think, um, so I like it. I I like the idea, but I, I, I of um, like stasis. Yeah, of universalism, yeah. but me too. It doesn't. I don't think it works without. I don't think it captures the lived experience of people. Well, I don't think it works without the concept of purgatory. Yeah. Or in Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism in particular. Well, how about this? This is the way I describe it, like when college students, you know, there's a lot of uh, mm -hmm. inferiority complexes on campuses because, you know, the Protestants know the Bible, this and that. Mm -hmm. And that stuff kind of bores me. But purgatory comes up sometimes. And I think when I started in campus ministry, well, again, our four kids came within, say, five years. So I forget which one, but I was I was kind of surrounded by babies. But I'm looking at the bookshelf behind you, Michael. And I remember, I think it was my youngest, Aiden, who's on the podcast once. You know, he he would take the books out from the bookshelf, throw them on the ground. And we'd say, no, you know, stop doing that. And then uh, eventually we learned, just put him in so tight he couldn't do it. But, you know, we'd say, don't do that. Don't do that. And then he would look at us, take the books out. And it was just a baby, right? You and that. Yeah. And I say, you don't, don't do that. But then he would say, me, bad boy, me, bad boy, and start bawling and bawling. And then oh. we would go hug him, right? And say, like, we love you. But the point being, you know, during, as he hates our love when he's mad at us, but you fold into it, right? And that's the quintessence, that's purgatorial. And mm -hmm. the other place is, um, you know, Blake's great quote, which because it's true poetry means it's true theology. He says, we are put on this earth, a little space, so that we might learn to bear the beams of love, right? And and I think that's uh, all there, purgatory. For me, one of the I, I actually I've, I've written about this before, but I think the best book ever written on purgatory 
is the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So I haven't read it. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I mean, I, I have to do a, a online or in-person course on wisdom literature because I used to do this. At, I used to teach at a Dominican place nearby before COVID, and they had me teach this course, and I could basically do it any way I wanted. They just wanted people to be exposed to wisdom literature, so I taught that, and I saw, taught Marcus Aurelius and other stuff, and uh, and the Tao Te Ching. But in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, what happens is the person dies and the guide or the priest will tell them, well, first you're going to see the clear light of the Buddha. So don't be afraid. And you'll just, and you'll go to it, you'll be enlightened, you will be united with, with God. And, but it always goes, but you know what? Most people get afraid of the, of the clear light. Yeah, right. Yep. So then they, they slip down to another thing. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. It's okay, you can still get there from here. And it keeps de decreasing because what happens is a person's sins, or we could call them attachments in a Buddhist sense, are, are what will pull them down or create fear and anxiety in them to reject the clear light, right? Which is exactly what purgatory it's is. It's exactly what happens, yeah. Yeah. And again, we just kind of know it to be true in our bones. Because anything yeah. else would be kind of crazy, you know? Because you, you can't... You can't uh, I mean, the thing is, you know, people say, well, it's in the Bible. But what's, well, purgatory isn't in the Bible. In the Book of Maccabees, that's where we claim you can find some uh, traces yeah. of it. Yeah. Of course, yeah, of course the, the Jewish people reject that claim. <laughs> um, their Bible, too. Um, yeah. But, I mean, you can't reconcile the punitive God with jesus and the parables of the lost sheep and we don't think bentley hart would disagree with any of this do you agree no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's not really my concern but just letting I mean, our listeners know the parable i mean the parable of the lost sheep is what a loving father would do right 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 and the same thing with the prodigal son mm -hmm. and it, guess what the sheep didn't go wow i really screwed up i'm gonna go back and say i'm sorry to the shepherd yeah right that's not yeah. how it goes and when when uh, again on campuses it's really helpful because you're talking to atheists, you know, again, Protestants, Catholic, atheists. But like for the atheists, you know, they know that somebody could be going to church every Sunday. And so, you know, again, purgatory is like you're welcome to provided that you're you've acclimated yourself to love in this life. So when you see infinite love, light, whatever it is, like responds to like in you and you're going to be drawn to it. But you mm -hmm. could be somebody who thinks in believes in this disease called religion who's at church it's not all of them but you know there's this it's way over stereotyped in people's caricatures of the church and there's a lot of us in the middle but you can have that person who is in church every week but always thinking about the people who aren't in church and their inferiority to her and you could use religion and you when you find when you meet this infinite light love or something if you haven't cultivated that in your heart of course you could you know when jesus says you can take the eucharist for the wrong reason um, mm -hmm. if, and so that's Make purgatorial too. Idol, right? Yeah. So you see you're in church every week and you see that light because people are right. Cause everybody goes, why would I come to church? So I see some people in church who are hypocrites. And they don't know it. Obviously true. But we can, you know, 2000 years after the incarnation, we can make some of these things true by our experience where the microcosm mirrors the macrocosm. That's why I mentioned my son falling into our arms. William Blake saying, of course, it's it's existentially true that we'll learn to bear the beams of love. And then it justifies our intuitions that you could be the most religious person in the world. Still, you know, you're on the outside. You're just not getting it. You know, 
Of course that's true. Of course that's true. And you can be in it and not getting it either. A hundred percent. Right. And and that's actually I don't know if you caught this, but I, I dropped a comment on Twitter yesterday because I, I'm I w- I've been asked to give a talk next week to some Hillsdale or next next month. To I thought some, you were gonna say hillbillies, which would be some Hillsdale place. people okay. on magic. Hmm. And so I know a little bit about this. And I was tr- and magic is of course and I think magic is exactly what what propaganda is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's precisely what what it is. It's yeah. it's exactly how it works, right? It's how how you can use the subtle to influence the gross. Mm-hmm. Um, but but intimately related to this idea of magic is imagination, right? Agreed. Yep. Agree. And so I was going to all my imagination peoples. You know, from Pico de la Mirandola to Coleridge and to our man William Blake, mm-hmm. and so I was in. And the the best place, boys and girls, the best place to find William Blake on the imagination is in the, his. Uh, You're into Jerusalem today, of, yeah. Um, Jerusalem, yeah. And I was just going through my, my. I've had this book for thirty years, and it's got all my notes in it from every single time I've read this. And boy, I've read it a lot of times. And I was going through that, and I was saying, this might be the greatest most important poem ever written i think it probably is i've started just to scratch the surface i've read it a few times north of fry has been my guide so i know somebody who's been there has convinced me that there's a whole world there you know in that poem yeah and key to that book is the the most the the most sublime act of imagination or magic is forgiveness okay yeah so i forgive you you forgive me yeah and how about tying, you know, the name of your journal, Jesus, the imagination to two themes we've already talked about. So imagination is exactly what you're saying. Um, but it's also if when we're talking about heaven and hell, you know, as opposed, again, to the Catholic mythos of seeing St. Peter and him asking you to do these things like go to church, which is the disease called religion. Simone Vey, who was against plagiarism, by the way, but, you know, re helped us recast that image of entering into the afterlife when she wrote on the right use of attention uh, towards you know school studies. And the question becomes to me, when I teach it, I let people know it's St. Peter asking Michael Martin, what's the right question to show that you've lived a truly human life? If you want to get into this thing and hear the bells and buzzers go off and say, welcome. And of course, the question is, what are you going through? And so one of the greatest you know, definitions of the imagination is to put yourself into another person's place, right? To spend all day thinking, not as what somebody else thinking about something, but what would Michael Martin say about this? And that's a spiritual discipline, much more in many cases than this kind of lacrimose, verbose, Lord, Lord, Lord thing. Um, You know, so imagination weaves into the centrality of it, weaves into all these uh, conversations. Yeah, and and the, of course the danger. I mean, because the bad guys know that too, right? So they also yeah. try to. Yeah. This is what propaganda does. It yeah. tries to. It tries to influence the imagination. You're going to recognize that light um, that we're put on this earth a little while to learn to bear the beams of. You're going to recognize it if you here's you know another key word for the gospel, but imagination, and um, and friendship, right? To the degree that you have friendship and you work at friendship, you're going to have imagination because, you know, when when you fall in love with somebody or or even C.S. Lewis on these friendships like that, this person's alive. It's it's not a smothering in that, that there's somebody who's like this, a great friend, but also so close with me. 
you know, we get into that paradoxical thinking where you can be one and many at the same time. And these are the types of things that is the musical register that some of our great poets say this light love or whatever we're going to see when we die. That's right there in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. You know, that's how we're going to start recognizing it. We're giving all the cues in the gospel. And, and that's actually as a teacher. Um, Rudolf Steiner was great about this. I mean, Rudolf Steiner was brilliant about finding very simple techniques to awaken the imagination of children. Give an so example. One, one of the things he was really, well, he would be really against watching the movie as opposed to reading the book. Yeah. Say why. And actually, he'd prefer telling the story rather than reading the story. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, they're both better than watching the movie because what happens with watching the movie is the images are given to you. It's like a, it's ha like having a, a digital watch, right? Which tells you the time. You don't have to work to tell the time, right? So if, and you see this with children, and the thing is children less and less have this, uh, the activity of the imagination in the way they play. Right, right, right. Because they got the iPad or whatever they have, or the, put them in front of a movie. Mm -hmm. But they're not out there seeing things in, yeah. in the world, right? They're not see, seeing things that aren't there but are there. Mm -hmm. You know, whether they're pretending they're Robin Hood or whatever they are, what they're doing. We're Indians, playing cowboys and Indians like we used to do when we were kids. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, and one of the things Steiner did is he talked about dolls. I mean, he even went to dolls, right? So for him, a doll, the most useful doll would be like, basically a rag over a ball of cotton with two eyes made like dots and a little smile with a pen. You have to fill in much more of it. The and child, Raggedy Ann is an awesome doll. The child would have to fill yeah. it in mm -hmm. right, with his with her imagination. You still see to this day, it's timeless, the attraction young girls have to Raggedy Ann dolls, you know, as mm -hmm. opposed to these other kinds. Because again, they're, your imagination is going to humanize that thing so much more, right? You know, yeah. as a, uh, here's another question about the imagination. It was something that I think ties in. You know, what are the diseases if um, putting yourself into another person's place might, and I'm only speaking for myself, that's a spiritual discipline. Do it. I'd rather have you do it than saying, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of other things people are kind of uh, blown off steam on. But there's, I was talking to somebody over the weekend and I found myself getting animated in conversation because we were conversing about the idea of thought. And I think this has come up in other ways for me on this podcast, but it's the notion that um, I got, I think, Powie's quote here, but it's the notion that, you know, a worldview as if we um, uh, stand outside the world and talk about it, or a worldview that, you know, a spiritual discipline every day, remember that you came out of your mom's womb and you had to figure out what was going on on the way. You know, so, you know, my hatred of Archimedes, but like after it was before the Cartesian idea, but then, and I was just thinking that like, I know why I like Berjaev and I know why I like, and probably people who do like this podcast, we're lucky to have a few. They probably like it because I think you think this way naturally, but I've had more than what I think about. I've had to train myself to think in categories that we hit this ground running and we're trying to figure out what's going on. We're always looking for systems. So the next day, if you believe in synchronicities, people have heard my love of Gerald Hurd. But and I, this is, you know, there's a Powys quote about um, Rabelais, you know, Archimedes used to try and control the world, but Rabelais was just, you know, a ship that sailed on the world. Um, you know, so he, Rabelais, knew this, the freedom 
of this type of thinking. But this Gerald Hurd said, um, and again, it was synchronous to me, man has been striving for objectivity, the power to stand back, the power to find a fulcrum from which he could control the event. He could not find it. He was therefore compelled to be on the defensive and escapist because he had never escaped his own distortion and deviation. You know, the world's half created, half perceived. That's Owen Barfield and Steiner. But the other one is the imagination. We can only have it when I think we have that spiritual discipline and we realize ontologically we're in the world, right? We don't stand outside of it. Um, and we have to recognize in so much of our philosophizing and these ideologies we have about the market or these ideologies they have about political parties, these are all based out of fear. You know, so it's the opposite of imagination, dullness, or is the opposite of imagination, fear, right? You know, mm -hmm. and that, you know, because Paul contrasts love and fear, not love and hate, you know, puts imagination close to the act of loving, again, which is fundamentally, in all sincerity, to be asked one person ever to say, what are you going through? You know, mm -hmm. Dante, when he saw Beatrice, you know, he said, perfection walks the streets of Florence, and I know not even her name. His first one was one of otherness that he had to approach. It wasn't this possessive thing. But all these ideas of imagination, these ways we think. But I just I'm finally come to the conclusion that I only have the stomach for reading people who I'm guessing at some point in their life woke up and said, I was born into the hurly burly. I can't stand outside the world and get this kind of fearful place, you know, and that's all. I, it's another definition for ideology, I think. Well, yeah, it's 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 about inhabiting the world. Yeah, and and I actually I don't know if you I saw I I last week was it last week I sent in my new poetry book to my publisher. Oh, congratulations! It's he, he didn't know it was coming either. He's like, yeah. oh, I was like, okay, I'm gonna saddle him with another book of poetry. But uh, and you know it'll get it published at Angelico. You don't have to question that or anything. You never know. I mean, okay. <laughs> I liked your facial expression. He liked it. He liked it. I mean, we actually he was okay, pretty good. You put some up. I've enjoyed all of them. Yeah. But with a um, uh, this book, actually, I deliberately decided I would write. I mean, not the whole thing, but a lot of the poems are about inhabiting the landscape around my okay. farm. Yeah. And seeing the the myths or legends or stories that live there. Mm -hmm. And I say, actually, I think uh, Mark. Uh, Martin Shaw would probably like this book. Yeah, because I was, this is sociology was too, right? You know, the yeah. in between the metaxu. This, this is sociology to be, it you is. know, in the world. It's a way of thinking that's in the world. It's not one of these bad neo-Thomist type of uh, Archimedean no. points. It's not. Doesn't start from conceptual. It, no. it starts from experience. Right. And I want actually in a lot of the poems, if I look at them, you know, I know the place I'm describing, but I'm not describing things that happen. But they were things that came out of that ground, mm -hmm. which was kind of an interesting experiment for me. Yeah. Which I mean, I'm sure I've done that um, kind of atavistically in the past with sure. writing, but this was intentional. Wow. I'm going to use this part of the, you know, of the woods over here or this part, this one. And you could imagine another story that happened there. Yes. You would like, uh, you know, you people have heard me ad nauseum mention John Cooper Powys, but like, one of his most famous books is a Glastonbury romance. romance. You can find it online. Right. But the opening chapter is this wildly, wildly, maybe nine-page sentence on how a tree, there's two people in love underneath it, and the tree's memory of this thing. Mm. Um, it's one of the masterpieces of modern literature, this chapter. I have to read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. Actually, I've been, I've been reading a lot about Glastonbury before I go to bed lately. 
Of what? Glastonbury? Okay. Glastonbury for a dollar at, at the yeah. local thrift store. Okay, yeah. That that Glastonbury romance was a riot. It's a wild book. A wild book. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, Michael, do you know there's a guy, uh, I was going to ask you about him. We've never talked about Erasmus. I'm just getting into him. But I got onto him. Do you follow a guy on Twitter? His He's uh, got a picture of Erasmus as his thing. Whatever I know what you're talking about. What's his name? Tom. Tom. That's his Twitter handle's just Tom. Okay. And I, you know, I almost never leave. I spend maybe five minutes a day on Twitter, but he's coming up a lot because I must pause on those, but I almost never leave the comments. But I think the general vibe is we don't know who this person is. I think he lives in Texas, but I think he was somebody who was kind of held captive by maybe some scrupulosity who was Ooh, liberated by Erasmus. No, no, no. Uh, this guy, the Twitter guy. And then he, it would just be like, I would give credit to, um, Powys and Vizinchi or John Sullivan. This guy would give credit to Erasmus. So I started back with his essential Erasmus. Point being, um, his one in the introduction to the version he recommends, and I forget, I probably have it. Anyhow, really good translation because, uh, you know, I think it's a well born idea that if he wrote in his native language, like was starting to happen around Europe at that time, he'd be as famous, you know, but he wrote in Latin. He was such a scholar. But the, um, you know, when you think that he lived through the Protestant Reformation, you get an image that this guy, you know, he saw all this kind of hostile religion over here. And he, we saw the beginnings of the Counter-Reformation that's over here. And he's never going to be named a saint. But he had, he was looking for an ironic Catholicism. Right. Mm-hmm. Wild, wild. And he really thought like, like you're saying, it's all about forgiveness and being kind yeah. to our enemies. And yeah. um, this mm-hmm. is... Uh, it's wild stuff, right? You know, we'll have to have this guy on, but you know what we need. It sociology is an ironic Catholicism, Definitely. Yeah. and uh, actually, he influenced, I think, pretty profoundly John Donne. Okay, John Donne's book Essays in Divinity. It's yeah. not a very. It's about him puzzling through the things that were dividing Christians, and and for Donne, it's like, what's the big deal? I don't see where we're divided. Yeah. And, if it's transubstantiation, some say it's with some t- say it's <laughs> yeah. it took it took Erasmus to the end of his life. He was world famous at that time. Every university wanted him to condemn Luther, right? And I think he was just really pressured into it. And he was certainly more he was more hospitable with the uh, the Catholic faith, but he just didn't think this thing had to get as bad as it did. No, and now we have now we have this stupid battle in the Catholic Church between the liberals and the rad trads, and well, it's just described- so funny. He described himself as he said, uh, I laid the egg that Luther hatched. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Um, yeah. And, but I, I mean, he did have, there was part of him that was like Thomas More. Yeah, they were connected. Who, who was uh, definitely the Renaissance humanist, right? Yeah. But definitely wanted to distance himself and didn't think uh, folk traditions and pilgrimages and, and relics and stuff were, yeah. were helpful. Christians at all yeah that's, that's some of the stuff I love yeah no it's good to hear that you know then we can still say somebody will say but I really love it we're like yeah it doesn't mean it's the end of the world but it probably doesn't again it's about okay. the scale of it yeah well we live in an age where people think if you like one thing a guy said you have to be married to him like yeah everything right. he said. No, no that's never how it's been yeah right? Rab so. Lake considered um Erasmus he called him his father mother he once he heard that Erasmus needed a certain tome and Rabelais just to be connected with him. And I think part of the story might be this. And I think if it is, 
it's super meaningful for me. But Erasmus, you know, translated the New Testament into Greek. I think mm-hmm. Rabelais wrote it. And as Powies would say, and my friend Father Ed Dillon, who's kind of a linguist, who's been on the podcast, that um, Erasmus saw that certain things said in in Latin are very, it's just, it's a legal language. It's in the air of Latin. It's top down. And all of a sudden, Rabelais, he reads this thing, the gospel in Greek. And Rabelais, he, it, the whole world is talking about the underworld. It turned upside down. All of these things were liberating in the Greek as they were originally written down. And uh, Rabelais took his inspiration. You can make a case from so much of that. And what came out of it was this, again, irenic Catholicism, a geniality where they wage war and he just makes the enemy instead of Saddam Hussein, who is you know, in a spider hole or whatever these stories are. You know, he just made him a seller of green sauce for a while. And then he went to he had like Dante, he had a trip to hell and he went down there. And he goes, you know, they're not such bad people down there. Right. And that's, and that's what happened in, in the Reformation is there were a number of, of figures like that, um, like Erasmus, like John D. actually, John D. I think John D.'s dabbling with with magic to try to talk to angels in my estimation, was actually a project to recapture the language of Adam so that the, the divisions in Christendom could be healed. That's what, wow. his, that's what his deal was. Yeah. Um, but they, they were in the minority. And in a po- course, the political uh, environment encouraged division. It's kind of like now, right? It's kind of like- Right, 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 right. No, that's what like, I'm saying. It's like algorithms. That was the, that was the early modern, version of algorithms how to divide people yeah it was it was and again we're still we're just being so swept up in those same patterns right now with our overly politicized uh branches of religion you know so that um it's elvis costello again what's so funny about peace love and understanding becomes a legitimate question you know it is a legit question yeah yeah and we need to ask it it seems (laughs) a lot of people prefer war and, and misunderstanding. I think it's the understatement of your career, but like your understatement captures the absurdity that so many people I think do. You know, that their their religion is tied up with, within, we gotta let people know it's a dog eat dog world out well, there. Yeah. So, so you and I got God in our back pocket. This is the one true faith. And uh, he's on our side and it's some twisted version of Twain's war prayer and everything. Well, yeah. And I think, I think you see it in our cultural situation right now, you see, the kinds of irenicist figures who don't agree on everything, mm-hmm. but they're people from, you can call from the left and the right who uh, can come together. In fact, I was just watching uh, a slip cut from an interview of uh, Jimmy Dore, if you know him. Yeah, I do. Who's a lefty. I mean, he's a traditional lefty. He was interviewing T- Tucker Carlson. Of course, yeah. They had, they had a lot to agree on. Of course, and, yeah, and Similarly yeah. with... Uh, um, you see Naomi Wolf and other kinds of people who are like got some heavy lefty pedigrees, but now it's not that they're moving to the right, but they they even Bill Maher, right? Who yeah. realize now polarization is stupid. I mean, it's not that I hate everything. I don't have to love everything you you believe in. Yeah, but right. well, we can t- we can have a conversation. That's what and that, that's what academia is based on. And in academia, actually, unfortunately is not that at all anymore for, right. uh, in the in the main mm-hmm. you know it's 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 as tribal and as uh fractured as anything you see in social media yeah no just even thinking about it it's it's uh 
you could cry about it because it's so it, it didn't have to be this way. No, and it Where, didn't use either. Yeah. I mean, because I don't know if you remember, when I was a kid, I didn't know what my parents' political affiliation was. I didn't either. Nobody cared. No, no. It was such a minor thing in people's lives. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I, I honestly think I hadn't thought of that. Like, nobody is true. Nobody cared. Nobody, nobody would have thought, cared. nobody would have wondered if what the neighbors thought about this president or that president. They would have been at the backyard barbecue. Yeah, it just wasn't. Yeah. yeah. I never, I didn't know. I mean, I eventually, I think it was 10 or 11, I figured out my parents must have been Democrats, but they were not, you know, <laughs> CNN watching Democrats. They were, you know, they were working class Detroit people. <laughs> I think working my dad working, working class Catholic Catholic yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That, the Democratic Party had something going for it there you know but the um I think I'm laughing too because I don't know what my parents were so if my dad my mom might have been Democrat and my dad if he was Republican and I think he was I remember his bumper sticker said during the Bush era I'm already against the next war and I knew he just thought like Bush was the worst president yeah which was true yeah so, but uh, so if he was a Republican, he wasn't caught up in the tribalism and was willing to drop it at a moment's notice. Um, it's interesting. Where did I see a, an interesting take on who somebody we liked came out with something for Robert Kennedy Jr. that was very thoughtful? Oh, it's our friend Adam Smith. Oh, did he? I mentioned, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd like it. He's been on the podcast twice and over at Front Porch Republic. He was he was doing some really interesting things. Um, and it made me think I left a comment on his article, but he's looking at politics, you know, and uh, it's this notion between is it tragedy or comedy? We just don't know. Like when you're when you're living through this nightmare, what do you do? And I was telling him and that's to tie a lot of this around. That's why I was with that Gerald Hurd book, because I was letting Adam know that in Gerald Hurd, when he looks at the end of the Islamic, I mean, at the end of the Hindu development, you know, they had the mm -hmm. uh, the Vedas, the Upanishads. Then there was looking the um, the Gita, I believe, was seen as the fifth Veda, like some people talk about the fifth gospel. Mm -hmm. And then it was moving towards Tantra, which is not what people think it was. But it's almost I've said this once on the podcast that tragedy is an aperture that's smaller and you widen it and you can see comedy. You know, we might see part of the story. A guy's getting chased by something and a shadow looks like a knife, but widen the aperture and there's a comedy. And Tantra was moving in this direction. And and then the Islamic invasion happened and it was it was strangled in the cradle. And I find that so fascinating. That's where I saw Heard reflect on this kind yeah. of Cartesian way of thinking. You know, that's how I think about the Reformation, because uh -huh. as I mentioned this week, I was I dipped into some Renaissance Neoplatonism. I think I and saw you had pictures. Idealistic, optimistic Ficino and Pico, you know, about what the world can be like and they were all tapped into the i was even reading the hermetica this week because uh -huh. so, they were all tapped into that stuff and it's all really super beautiful and idealistic and hopeful and it was like almost like, had, like the west was at this moment about to really flower and then the reformation starts and all hell breaks yeah yeah, then, yeah and, with the, and the reaction with that and i think we, we're probably seeing something like that now what happens when you have this flowering period, like was was in the, the Florentine Renaissance, of intellectual and artistic growth and renewal, and you know the sky was the limit. 
but then the Reformation comes in, and then our, our, all of a sudden everybody's got to get serious. You know, have to you have to tighten up ship, right? Which is exactly. what the Reformation right? The Counter Reformation is like you call that a Reformation. I'm going to show you a Reformation, and yeah. everybody gets super strict. And actually, yeah. <laughs> one of the books I, I've been reading this week is uh, <laughs> Juan Culiano's Eros and Renaissance Magic, or whatever. It's yeah, called. yeah, yeah. And that's his argument, right? Is that you know, it was basically the Reformation shows up and then the Counter-Reformation is like, it's like playing poker with, oh, you think that was, we're yeah. going to see Reformation and we're going to raise you. And gonna... Erasmus was that guy who just wanted that whole, uh, this kind of peace-loving, gospel-infiltrated life. You're right. And he he might have been the flower when you say it was flowering about to happen. You know, uh, his breath his humanity to read his writing. He was, he was a human being, a giant, right? And then the whole thing happened. And do you think, you know, listeners of the show, Germany prior to World War I was catching on some of that vibe. Exactly. Do you agree or no? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you go from- Things are coming together in wild combinations. German idealism. Yeah. And how did those guys end up with in the Nazis, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it was, but- Again, I think those are external economic, book, yeah. economic and political forces. Which, <laughs> shout out Guido, shout out. Well, which put pressure on yeah. the whole culture to, to get it together, right? Yeah. And so everybody, you know, and there's a great moment in that movie, which we talked about on this podcast too, uh, Wings of Desire, where this old German dude, Homer, he's called in the movie, is lamenting what happened and, he, and the, all, the way he describes it. And then all of a sudden people weren't friendly anymore. Wow. Friends. Right? Yep. Yep. That, that's it's in a way, it's the story of the human race. We, we, we get almost to the point of something beautiful. And then all of a sudden people weren't friendly anymore. Yeah. You, you saw, I think it was in your, you know, it was in Jesus, the imagination. And my son thought he was discovering at the same time. But I contrast interest with interest to come at something you're getting at, right? You know, interest in terms of usury versus this most beautiful yeah. word of interbeing, friendship, putting yourself into another person's place, sharing their being with them, friendship, not being alone. And then you have interest, you know, something dead, compound. It grows faster than cancer. And, you know, my favorite quote, and I used it in that article, Thomas Mann, the, you know, the novelist, in Dr. Faust's, somebody said, what's the greatest emotion? Everybody agreed in the room or however the scene was, is love. And he goes, no, 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 no. It's interest. And um, he said, you know, you can love this or that, which captures on Dostoevsky's love for humanity and hatred of individuals and so forth. But to be interested in somebody else, it's gone, like friendship. Right. You know, when the world right. used to be friendly. Yeah. And it goes right to Simone Weil, right? Yeah. But attention is the purest and rarest form of generosity. Yeah, yeah. This Howard Thurman, an African-American theologian, I worked at a research project based on him for a number of years. Uh, the background theme of so much of his preaching, which was great, was uh, a friendly world under friendly skies. You know, and all it's just kind of like what Elvis Costello was saying about peace, love and understanding. We just laugh at those things now. Right. What's so funny about them? It's so a friendly word under friendly skies. We'd say you'd just be cast by the cynical jet set. You know, nobody talks like that anymore. Nobody talks like that anymore. Yeah. Once are you gonna well, somebody's gonna start, right? Yeah, yeah. So tell me, my friend, what are you doing for Christmas? What's going on in the farm? What's new? 
You got a book of poetry mm -hmm. at the press. What is going? Um, I don't know. It's <laughs> we just we, we keep it kind of keep low key. I mean, the day after Christmas dinner is the day all the relatives and everybody comes over. So Christmas Day, I think we're gonna eat some goose. Okay, just chill out. And I'm hoping to get out and do a little bit more hunting, beer okay. hunting. Mm -hmm. Um, but how about you? trying to think christmas somewhat subdued we're going to uh the big apple tomorrow to see a niece okay. in her dance school's nutcracker which will be nice and i have a daughter and her husband or son-in-law who lives there in queens and it's uh they live in a cool part of queens they can't deny like the trip into the city and out is kind of a pain in the ass i might take the subway to rockefeller center it's about a seven minute ride maybe it's 20 and, and everything's safe and it's pretty and so i like it probably more than i let on but I don't love it. And I still wonder like who can raise kids here, you know? Yeah, so, know. but um, we've done over the years, cause we go down there a lot. We've seen the Rockettes and I, it's not that I'm allergic to the magic of it. I know my daughter who we're bringing, my other daughter we're bringing with us and her husband, uh, you know, she loves that Rockefeller tree and everything. And she'll, you know, she wouldn't miss it. Um, so we're oh, doing that, that for you? about five hours. Not too bad. Okay. Yep. Um, and then, Christmas Day, we got my son and his wife, Abby, coming from Columbus, and my youngest son, Aiden. He's still here, and uh, should be nice. I, my We have in-laws around here and everything. Yeah. Sounds good. Should be good. And so next year, what uh, we know we're, for our listeners, we're gonna you're going to start hearing some of the uh, our pals, Guido and Tara. I want to have Lindsay Rose on again soon. I hope she hears yeah, this. Oh, we got to have Therese on, and then we'll be weaving in our cadre. Like, what subjects... Michael, we'll kind of conclude on this topic. What subjects have you been thinking about lately that we have to weave in? What have I been thinking about? I haven't been thinking about too much. <laughs> yeah, you've been busy, so I've been so busy. But I actually, I trying, yeah. you know, I'm going to get Roger Buck on the show. Yeah, he'd be great. I just dropped him an email today. Hopefully, he'll he'll he'll, he'll come in. Yeah, but I'd he, like to do a show on Johnny Appleseed. Yep, one on yeah. Erasmus. I'd like to do one. I'd like to see that Stephen Clark again. I think he speaks from a, a unique place. And when I'm listening, I find things he says magnetized. Guido will be joining us again, of course. Adam, uh, many others. Who else? Who else have we talked? We want to see on this. Um, oh, there's. If anybody knows how to connect with this guy who wrote Blake and the Less Hemisphere, any of our listeners, I'll send you some uh, regeneration merch. Oh, we could sell merch next year. My daughter is just flipping out T-shirts at the drop of a hat. Is she really? So in the New Year's, yeah, in the New Year's. Um, well, I'll I'll try to promote something in the next couple of weeks. People could get a regeneration T-shirt, um, and then, uh, yeah, I think that's about it. We should get Matthew Milliner back on too. Yeah, 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 exactly. I've, I'm right now. He came up again. Uh, I was reading. I read his G.K. Chesterton and the Native Americans. Yeah, and I just follow like talks he gives around the country. The guy's endlessly fascinating. Yeah, he is, and he's entertaining too. He's funny as hell. Yeah. He must be a great My team. daughter would say, get him back on. Some friends I know could say, get Therese back on, get Therese back on. I've heard the Lindsay Rose here. There's a guy commenting lately today. You see comments. Uh, John Swanson might be his name. Sounds like a really intelligent guy, John, when you listen to this. And he's right now, it seems like he's obsessed with Guido Preparato. You'll have to look at some of really? those comments, Michael. Yeah, very informed opinion. At times, mad that Guido couldn't appreciate the Beatles. When he I could still, spend his time listening to Vivaldi the whole his whole life, and I still haven't gotten that book. I got to get that book. Which book? Empire and Church. 
He's going to send it to us. And if Guido, if you're listening, remember, you said you're going to send us your books. He's got about four out right now. He's got one on Afghanistan, Hopefully and 9-11. He got, I hope he, he got his copy of Jesus Imagination. I sent it about a month ago. I hope our listeners read, buy Jesus the Imagination, read Guido Preparata's retelling of a Grimm's fairy tale that will blow your mind. There's a lot of well, stuff. Yeah. And actually, let's try and we'll have another conversation next week. You know, I'll, I'll start sending out these emails, gathering our friends. We'll either find time or not, but people will be seeing us pretty regularly. All right. And I look forward to seeing you all again. All right. Peace out, Cubs Thanks for listening.